Okay, so it wouldn't be an Usuli Q&A without going into the realm of the paranormal. <laughs> um, and this is a nice, nice question. Perhaps a strange but sincere question for submission as follows. One, a few years ago, I woke up, I awoke from sleep, sitting straight up in bed, heart pounding, having heard, not in a dream, a voice saying, your death age is 63. And I'm using the word voice, but the quality of this was unlike anything I've ever known or heard. I've thought of this every day since, since then. I guess my question is, what do you make of that? And the second question is, is there an explanation for an intoxicating, beautiful scent or perfume in the presence of a dying person in their last days and hours? I should add that it seems among the many people surrounding the dying person, I, only I was aware of it. Okay, well, first, um, wh wh the, there are several steps you take with something like this. Several steps you take. One, you, you have to look inwards and exclude the possibility of um, mental illness or... And, so you know you, you consider whether you have your family has a history of hallucinations uh delusions um um schizophrenia etc cetera, etc cetera. absent that if you know that this is not the case and that you there there you know it, and it's a, it's a the symptomology that will often tell you because if someone who's mentally someone who has these these psychological problems um it, it will be consistent and systematic and it will increase and you know you can look up the 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 symptoms um and if you exclude illness different people are sensitive to different degrees. So why it is part of the way Allah created us. Some of us are sensitive because of their ibadah. Some of us are sensitive because they were born this way. Uh, when we are children, we, we are all sensitive to, to, to one degree or another. But as we get old, some of us lose a lot of the sensitivity. I mean, a lot. Most of us lose their sensitivities, and a small minority maintains the sensitivities. Um, so you have two separate incidents here, and again, I'm I'm excluding hallucinations and so on. Uh, what realm do they come from? It is possible that if you are sensitized in a way that either because of who you are as a human being or because of uh, the gifts that Allah gave you, um, sometimes you, the purity of the soul itself uh, plays a function in this. Uh, it is possible that if a very beautiful human being die is dying it is not unusual that as they are passing away for the for the air to have a 
um, a beautiful scent, a flower-like scent. Um, and it is not unusual that only certain people can pick up on the scent. Normally, uh, it is normally, it is people that are themselves very pure, very close to God. Um, they have a foot into the world of Malakut, um, sort of a world in a different dimension. So, yeah, I mean that that that's usually a good a good sign uh, when you you smell that that beautiful scent when someone is passing. It means that that person is special. The the voice um, informing you of an age. Interestingly. Um, this has the same type of experience has been reported, um, and I'm not talking about the, the 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 Western paranormal books. I'm talking about the um, uh, the, the types of the the books that were written from the Islamic civilization or in the Islamic civilization, and. That type of experience has often been described as um, demonic and deceptive. So I think you you were, and again I'm excluding illness. So if 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 everything okay, um, then consider that from Shaitan from the world of shayateen and just see seek refuge in Allah and do not believe it do not believe that voice um, there have been several reports like this and very uh, Sufi masters who are far better than I will ever be uh, advise their students to never believe that type of voice make go out of your way to tell yourself that voice lied to me that voice is from shaitan and shaitan is a liar thank you <clears throat> and just make sure because if you have that make sure that before you go to sleep you, you read in Mu'awuzat, you read Qul A'udhu Rabbil Nas, Qul A'udhu Rabbil Falaq, that you say A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajim many times, uh, that even if you can sleep with the Qur'an on, uh, turn the Qur'an on uh, in uh, you know uh, one of the Qur'an radios uh, when you sleep, if you can do that, um, it would be good just to, you know, because if, if you have... For whatever reason, you have portals that are open for shayateen, then just close them. Um, you need to clean your space. Okay, so staying with the theme or moving to the theme of death, um, we have a question, a couple of questions actually. Um, what happens to the body and soul after death or what happens when we die? 
and when we visit our dead in the cemetery and we say salam alaikum to them does that mean they can hear us and what relief if any can we provide them in the grave and another i mean a, connected to that how do we become more certain about life after death um okay What happens to the body? The body disintegrates. The, the 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 body that we have, it's like the um. It's like the armor suit that a knight enters into for the purposes of going into battle. It is like. Um, you know the the suit that an astronaut wears when they go into space uh it is something that god fits you in for the purposes of existing in this world and it disintegrates god in the in the hereafter whether god is going to bring back you know, the, 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 the actual molecules that disintegrated or give you a different suit, I think everyone that tells you they know, they're speculating. You know, God is going to, yeah, God talks about in the hereafter, you're going to have eyes, you're going to have hands, you're going to have feet, but are they going to be hands and feet and eyes like that exist on this earth? We don't know. It's just simply we don't know. You know, it is interesting for any of you who've actually seen a ghost or, you know, or a shadow person, even a shadow person, uh, a shadow person who are jinn, basically. You know, it's really interesting that when, when if you've seen them, they, they have a head, they don't have facial features, but they have two arms and they have what looks like legs. And then sometimes they, they travel in a ball. Now shapes what what that tells me is, are, are shapes are entirely subjective to to the the perceiver so you know when it serves their purposes to travel as a ball they they're in a ball and when they, it serves their purposes to appear with two arms and two legs it, that's the way they communicate with human beings um or or scare human beings or try to in, um, pursue human beings if you can imagine yourself jinn-like in the hereafter you know can you can we be you know like a ball of light and then for a moment uh, appear to have a head and two legs and two feet and so and anything is you know the laws of physics that exist now will not exist in the hereafter. What laws will exist, we don't know. We haven't seen this world. We haven't visited this world. Uh, now, what happened to the spirit? Uh, SubhanAllah, that same question was posed, they ask you about the, the, the soul. Tell them, when it comes to the soul, only Allah knows what where the soul is going to go, uh, how is it going to, what state of consciousness it's going to have, if any, until the final day? Uh, is the soul a field of energy? Is it light? Is it 
something else. We just don't know. Uh, SubhanAllah that in all the efforts, in all the centuries of human beings, human beings have made persistent and systematic efforts for centuries to pierce the veil between life and death, to know something about the soul after death, to communicate with the souls of the dead, and we can comfortably say that, subhanAllah, all these efforts have failed. There is no successful... You know, and nowadays they're adding all this modern technology and they, you know, they'll think they're communicating with the soul of a dead person. But if you look at, at what they're doing with an analytical eye, you discover that, you know, they, they could be communicating with things that they don't understand. And that's actually the most likely situation. They're opening doors that could end up bringing a great amount of trouble uh, in their lives. Um, anyway, so... The question, and I'm not sure if that's what the question was getting at, uh, the issue of azab al-qabr, whether um, between death and rebirth and qiyamah, the hereafter, uh, whether there is the state of in-between. Allah tells us that the dead are in a state of barzakh, that they are in a state of barzakh. The state of barzakh is, um, uh, there's an English word that's used that's um, skipping my mind. Um, uh, Grace, you've heard me talk about the barzakh before. Do you know what English word I've used for it? Oh, um, purgatory. No, not purgatory. Oh. Uh, not ethereal. Sorry. Veil? Oh. Okay. No, not, not veil. State in between, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, there, is a, there is a word that I've... It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a state in between, between earth, life on earth and hereafter. Um, okay, so just just remember that word, barzakh, because the Quran told us that we are in a state of barzakh, and it's a veil, I mean, it's a, it's a dimension. Um, while I believe that a lot of the hadith on Azab al-Qabr, a lot of the hadith about being in purgatory when you enter your grave, you are in a state of, either you are in Jannah or Purgatory. While I, there are a lot of problems with a lot of these hadiths, a lot of these hadiths uh, are very problematic. So you can't rely on them. But I do believe for a variety of reasons that when you die, the state of barzakh will either be a state of bliss if you you are going to either be in a in a peaceful blissful state you might not have any sense of time you might not have an awareness of time 
space, physical space, etc., etc., um, uh, or in a state of purgatory where basically you are away from the divine, you are shunned, and you know that you are, your fate is not good. Um, and then there are those who are the in-betweens, those who uh, are basically sleeping until they are, uh, because they, they're not clearly good and they're not clearly evil. And they are in a non, basically in a in, in a sleep, until they are, um, until the qiyamah, until the hereafter. So I I don't take a lot of the hadith about azab al-qabr literally, uh, but I think they all support a very fundamental, a basic idea that the purgatory of a serial killer, for instance, begins. The purgatory of a, of a despot, of um, one of these rulers who has tortured and murdered and killed, uh, their purgatory begins shortly after death. Uh, I mean, in, in the state of death. Um, the issue of awareness and, you know, do the, to the dead, are the dead aware of us? Um, this is something that I've discussed with so many shiuch. Um, Sheikh, um, who was it? The, uh, um, when I did the uh, the event at, at USC uh, was uh, Heather. Yes. Um, Sheikh Kazwini. Yeah, Sheikh Kazwini. There is a there is a a recording. You find a short discussion. Uh, with Sheikh, between Sheikh Qazwini and myself about this, and Sheikh Qazwini was saying that the dead are aware of the living, and that when you visit the dead, um, they are aware of your visit and happy with your visit. And of course, that relies on a number of hadiths that if I sum them up, basically where the Prophet ﷺ is reported to pass by a gravesite and he either speaks to the dead or says something to the dead and he is asked, do they hear you? And he says, yes, they hear me. Um, there, for me, there are a number of difficulties with these ahadith, a number of difficulties in um, their isnad, and even if the isnad holds up, uh, I have difficulties with generalizing the dead hearing the prophet to the dead hearing the living in general. Because... Al-Qiyas ala amal al-anbiya basing an understanding on the function of on what prophets did. Um, prophets had abilities that are not, um, cannot just be assumed to apply to everyone else. So, you know, uh, maybe the, those, the, um, 
so but the what what so the the gist of it is that while I do not exclude the possibility that the dead through Allah's permission that Allah can give permission to the dead to visit the living for the dead to be to pierce the veil that separates the living from the dead for certain purposes and objectives um Overall, I am not comfortable with saying that the dead are, are like, that when you visit a gravesite, that the dead are there waiting for you. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's true. When I visit my mom's grave, my mother's gravesite, I visit it out of respect, not because I believe that my mother is there, is actually there waiting uh, for me. The evidence for that is very weak. Um, and it would be, I mean, imagine, it would be very cruel and unfair if all the dead did was just wait in a gravesite until the loved, loved ones would come by, uh, you know, even if it's once a week for a few minutes. And, I mean that there, there, there is not enough evidence for me to imagine that Allah wants that type of life for those who pass away. Um, I think the gravesite is just the place where we honor the body that carried this, the, 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 the soul. Where is the soul after death? Only Allah knows. Only Allah knows. Okay, so related to the idea of um, burying the dead, actually, um, how should modern Western Muslims bury their dead? Um, first, what is the best hadith practice for burial and what is the process? Um, second, some areas of the West may face enormous county restrictions on abiding to that best practice. And if someone finds them in that, finds himself in that situation, you know, what are the implications for the dead? For example, I'm contemplating Western situations like mixed-faith cemeteries versus mono-Muslim burial without a coffin versus in a tomb or in a coffin um, and autopsies? From a Shara'i perspective, there is no problem with autopsies. Um, that issue has been resolved centuries ago. Um, you know, when when you if there is a reason to do an autopsy, you do an autopsy. Uh, the, the you know you don't you don't uh, play around with the body for for no ethical reason. Uh, but if there is a medical reason or wh whatever reason to do an autopsy, you simply do an autopsy. In Islam, the that issue is completely a red herring. It's not real. Um, so that, that's one thing. The other is that we had in this current pandemic um, several Muslim um, funeral places where, where they were overwhelmed by the dead. I mean, in New York, um, uh, funeral homes ran out of caskets, these, these wooden boxes that... Um, and... Uh, in some situations, they, they actually had to store bodies until they can find 
uh, people that knew could wash them and could put the kefan and um, and do the appropriate uh, processes. Um, my advice was in the is if we're talking about you know normal West as in Britain, the U.S. and so on, is that search for a Muslim funeral home. Someone who actually knows what they're doing, they know how to wash a body, they know what to recite, they know how to put the shroud on. Um, there, there is no problem in putting the shrouded body in a casket. What there is a problem with in Islam is wasting money on a casket. It is considered a form of uh, offensive israf to bury the dead in a fancy casket because in Islam, that the body is but a shell. It is, it is not the soul. And the body is this suit that was lent to us by Allah to live in on earth. And once we die, it becomes worthless. We honor it because Allah told us to honor it. And Allah told us how to wash it and how to put it in a kafan, to put it in a shroud. But there is no problem with putting that shroud in a wooden casket uh, and inexpensive. And if the ones that... Um, that are usually used for Muslim dead, uh, they're, they're they're very simple and very straightforward. They're they're just uh, and and I know that funeral homes, non-Muslim funeral homes, don't like Muslim customers because Muslim customer customers don't want to spend money, and so you know the funeral homes don't make a profit off of them, if at all possible find a Muslim funeral home. If you cannot find a Muslim funeral home, then f make an agreement with, with a funeral home to bring an imam that knows how to wash a body, how to cloth a body in the kafan, and insist on the bare minimum for a casket. Um, the, the absolute cheapest. I have a very strong preference for consecrated uh, graveyards that only take Muslim dead. In other words, for dedicated Muslim graveyards. Uh, it doesn't have to be the entire graveyard. A lot of graveyards are divided into sections. You know, um, a section for the Muslim faith or the Christian faith or the Hindu faith, it's whatever. Um, that is fine. I mean, it's not ideal because, frankly, I believe the entire graveyard should be consecrated in Allah's name. And, but absent the ability to do that, because a lot of states, it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to, to dedicate a, a plot just for one faith. Uh, a plot can be divided into segments and, uh, and so on. Uh, it is not at all ideal when you've got mixed burials, where you know you have a Muslim buried next to a Christian buried. Uh, 
Um, for many Shara'i reasons, I pref- I have a problem with that, but necessity sometimes imposes. I mean, sometimes it's just a necessity. Sometimes you just can't do anything about it. So I've been in places where, you know, um, the option is either we bury this person now uh, in a mixed graveyard, or you know, with a sign of the the. Um, with the headstone identifying this person a Muslim, or we transport this person to a faraway grave site, a Muslim grave site, uh, that is, you know, the family would say that was going to cost a lot more money and we can't afford it, and it means this person won't be buried in the ground for another 10 days or two weeks or three weeks. And in that situation, I, I say, you know, the... the May Allah accept and um, no bury this person now in in the mixed plot, in the mixed graveyard, rather than three weeks later and twenty thousand dollars later and create a burden uh, on the family. And you just pray that Allah will accept, will will base uh, the divine ruling on your intentions and um, what Allah knows you're capable of. But I think it is good for Muslims to go out of the way to buy plots of land that they dedicate to Muslim burials. Um, it, you know, again, we, we take, our, for something like this, is not an issue of reason or rationality. It's an issue of what we understand the text to say and how we interpret the text. And uh, only Allah knows best, Allahu alam. When when the brain in my ear gets too much, I just like take a short break to let it breathe. But uh, go ahead, read the next question. Um, So the next question has to do with destiny. So we've had several questions about destiny. Um, I'll read this one. If I'm not mistaken, Islam, perhaps in the Quran, propagates that our destinies are set or written, or perhaps that it is even. Uh, actually, I don't know this. Just laul al mahfuz But on the other hand, I've heard hadith that say that du'at changes destiny. I fail to understand how is that possible if destinies are set. Um, another person, Allah gave us the capacity to do good or evil. How do we deal with the concepts of predestination and destiny versus what Allah wills in general and also in the context of natural disasters in specific? Um, and let me just add a couple of, this is just sort of related to that. Um, if God is all merciful and all knowing, why would he create people that would end up suffering eternally? Um, for example, that would get into Jahannam. Um, and I fail to understand the concept of eternal reward or punishment. Um, as I'd kind of assumed that a finite time is spent on doing good or bad, then a finite reward would be expected. And he has a fear of infinity and cannot really grasp it. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, these um, really big issues. Um, infinity cannot be grasped. 
human beings are are created with a natural ability to grasp certain things as part of their consciousness. Um, you know, in the same way that interdimensional travel is not part of our innate uh, instinctive being. Um, in the same way that we exist within a relative relationship between time and space, and we understand everything from the perspective of that we see the from the perspective uh, of life on Earth, looking at the universe from life on Earth. So infinity, infinity, is a concept that um, is near impossible, or actually impossible for human beings to grasp. Very much like if you in mathematics. Uh, when you have I these equations that literally would multiply into infinity. Um, you know, the, these mathematical equations have always, you, you just sit there and, and, and uh, um, puzzle over them. Uh, these algorithms that just tell you about spatial relations that are very difficult to conceptualize through our, through our lived experience. Having said that, one of the most common misunderstandings um, is that Allah promises us infinity or eternity, either in hell or in heaven. Abada, abada, it's all based on that, that expression, the Quranic expression, abada. Abada means a long while, it means abad. An abad is a long period of time. It doesn't mean an eternal period of time. And that's a very, very, a lot of modern Muslims. Um, so how long in hellfire, we don't know. How long in heaven, we don't know. We know it's a long period of time. But can we say, can we say it's eternal? We can't say that. Partly because we don't understand what eternity means and partly because Abada itself just means an abad min zaman abad min zaman it's it's a period it's a period a long period of time but it does not promise you an eternal period of time um the idea in islamic theology is that those in hellfire uh, even those who said no, they, you know, even if we don't understand eternity, uh, Allah does promise those in heaven eternity, especially those in heaven. Uh, the idea that those in hell 
will be there to pay for their sins. And once you've settled your debts, that then you 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 go leave purgatory. You know, do you leave purgatory and um, uh, exist in a blissed state in heaven or something short of that? I don't know. And, you know, all the discussions you read about that, I don't think are supported by strong evidence. Um, but I do follow the school that believes that you settle your debt Means meaning you pay for your sins, um, but the Quran warns us that for those who told the Prophet والسلام, well, being in hellfire is not a big deal because we will just be there for a short period of time. We'll pay for our sins, and okay, we're willing to go to hell to pay for our sins, and and Allah warns them that. The, the, you know, don't be presumptuous with God. Um, don't take the idea lightly that, oh, I'll pay for the sin in hell and, and I can deal with it. That is as foolish as you can possibly get. Um, you know, what will time mean in the hereafter? Will we feel time the way we feel it now? Uh, these are all ghaibiyat. These are all things we don't know. But what seems <coughs> consistent with of all the debates about hellfire and so on, um, it, if uh, Allah is... All is is perfect justice. Allah Allah's justice is impeccable. I have absolute trust in Allah's justice, and what that entails, you know, how, what what is the bill that you're going to have to settle? You know, how much is each sin worth? Um, what will circumstantial and mitigating evidence mean uh, when thinking about each sin? All of these are questions that I don't know. But what I do know is that my role on this earth is to try to give every reason for Allah in the hereafter to be as forgiving and as merciful and as compassionate with me as possible. In other words, I want to be able to tell Allah, you know, I know I've done a lot of wrong things. And I know that your justice requires that I settle my debt and that I pay for these sins. But, I, but here is all the good that I've done and I throw myself at your mercy. Please consider all the good that I've done so that I don't have to pay for my sins. I know that I've been an idiot. I've been a moron. I've, I've been weak. I've been foolish. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I am not going to argue with you about my sins. I'm going to admit all my sins because 
the ego is the biggest sin. And before you, Allah, I will obliterate my ego. I don't want to spend any time in hellfire because I know what torture is. I've been through torture, and torture is horrible. And I don't want to pay for it one day, one hour, one minute. I don't want it. I don't, and I am going to, I all everything good I do, I do to present to Allah. And to be quite honest with you, I don't worry myself about the, the pleasures of heaven and all of that. All I want is to be near Allah. Among those who are in Allah's presence, because I know that Allah's presence is serenity and beauty and absolute calm. And I think Allah knows what, what is in each person and whether you are the type of person who can only find serenity and peace by drinking wine and having sex or you can find serenity and peace just being in the presence of Allah's beauty. Allah knows who you are. And if you deserve a reward, you know, that's up to that's up to Allah. I mean, I'm not going to tell Allah, oh, why are you rewarding this person by 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 giving him by, by allowing him to act like a moron, uh, you know, getting drunk and pursuing women, or you don't get drunk in, in, in heaven, but you get my point. That's not my business. My business is to enjoy Allah's grace and, 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 and beauty. That's what I want. I, I don't want all the, you know, I don't want to eat grapes and bananas and, and apples and honey. and It, that, it just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, uh, but I believe that Allah knows what is in you. And Allah speaks to you in the language that reaches you. And it depends on what how what your your being is. Is your being attracted to light or you're being attracted to physical pleasures? Um, punishment for sins, what is hellfire? Is hellfire, you know, an actual fire that that will just burn the skin? Or is hellfire, as a lot of Sufis have said, symbolic for agony, the agony of uh, living through your sins from the perspective of their evil? Um, and you can, I mean, people like Ibn Arabi wrote a great deal about this. And as you know, um, Dante's, uh, Dante's, um, um, Inferno was inspired by Muslim writing because Muslims wrote a great deal about this. You know, I, I personally don't like to get into these narratives about hellfire because all I know is Allah is speaking in a language that is designed to warn us about the consequences of sin. And I like to tell Allah, I get the point. I, you know, I, I'm not the type of human being that is such a moron that you need to spell out all the specifics of the agony that I might go through. It's enough for me to get the point. Say, okay, I've got it. There are consequences to sin. You're going to have to pay for your sins. 
I don't want to even go there. I want to do as much good as possible to earn forgiveness and to earn grace and to be among al-muqarrabin, to be among those who are close to you and who whatever time means in the hereafter, whatever abad means, whether you know it's a, it's a hundred days, a hundred years, a hundred thousand years, a hundred million years, whatever it is, all I want is to be in the presence of your grace because I know that you are beauty. You are beauty itself. And I want that beauty. Now, and when you get to that point, Allah speaks to your heart. All these questions evaporate. Allah, it's Allah speaks to you and you know thing it's as if Allah tells you about heaven and hell in ways that you can't disclose, in ways that you're not allowed to speak and 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 but you never take Allah for granted. You know, there is as no moment that I dare say, I my beloved, I take you for granted. You you, you if you truly love you can't take what you love for granted. And not taking for granted means not ever assuming that it's okay if I just do what is wrong and Allah will just forgive me. Oh, why doesn't Allah forgive me? That's insolent. That's, that's disrespectful. That is exactly what arrogance is. Okay, the, the question um, about predestination and so on let's take a two minute break and then I'll, I'll deal that because that is a big thing <laughs> why, why don't we ask this, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the secrets of life yes yeah. <laughs> as a middle
What did he say? She's right there. Oh, it, it's Maru. <laughs> She's right there. Um, you know, people, I, I want to tell you something. The the, the sins, you know, I, I, I read through Ihya Alum al-Din, I read through the writings of Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Abid Dunya, the writings, uh, most of Ibn, Ta Ibn Taymiyyah, what Ibn Taymiyyah has written about, and he's, write, he's written so much about so many different things. I've read, you know, people like a Muhasibi, um, and so on and so forth. And the sins that I worry the most about are the sins that are against other human beings and other living things. All the evidence is that every human being that you've wronged and offended uh, will have a platform against you in the hereafter. And every animal that you've wronged and offended will have a platform against you in the hereafter. Uh, if you've been cruel to a cat, a dog, a bird, you will be asked and the these sins terrify me um, because they involve the rights of others and it's one thing to ask Allah to forgive the sins that I've committed against my own body that Allah has lent me and say, Allah, I know that this is yours. This body is yours. Please forgive. But when it comes to the rights of other human beings and the rights of other living things, to ask Allah to forgive, it's a di very different type of appeal. And it's a very different type of burden. And if you are a smart human being, you would take these things very, very, very seriously. And to the extent possible, I would, I would, I try to have every person that I wronged forgive me on this earth before I meet God. I mean, if the Prophet in the very last, when when the last sermon, he invites every human being that he has wronged to exact their due, and this is the Prophet We know that in in when they were preparing for battle, when he just pushed a soldier, and can you imagine? I mean, in in our day and age. Any officer in the army or the police will, will abuse a soldier and not give it a second thought. The Prophet ﷺ just pushed a soldier lightly. And the soldier said, oh, you know, you've wronged me. I, 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 I want to exact my right. And the Prophet ﷺ said, here, you know, do whatever, you, take your right, you know, hit me back. And this is as they were preparing for battle. So the Prophet ﷺ took the idea of the rights of other human beings 
so seriously. So can you imagine the rights of your children, the rights of your parents, the rights of your neighbors, the rights of your students, the rights of all the human beings that you've impacted in your life. And they will have a platform. And so my dua is consistently, Allah, be with me because I know that I don't want to answer to this very, 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 very difficult test where everyone that I've wronged will have a platform. And I want forgiveness, and I want, and and forgiveness is is to to literally, uh, for Allah to say, you know, I understand that you've done your best, but I know that Allah will really know if I've done my best or if I'm just BSing, <laughs> you know. Because human beings are very good at BSing, they they wrong other human beings and and they uh, they convince themselves that they've done everything possible and and it's often a lie, and you know only when they are truly in a crisis mode do they confront their lies and you know if if they're on a plane and the plane is going to crash and it's like suddenly they're sorry about all the people that they've offended and wronged and uh, you know you don't you don't need to be in such a crisis state to, to be honest with yourself that that is what paying for your sins is and you know you don't want to settle your bill if you're, you don't want the bill to be so heavy that settling it will be a very difficult proposition. It just, it's just all common sense. On the issue of predestination, I've actually talked about this. And if if people go back to recordings over the years, I've talked about this many times. Uh, not everything is predestined. Allah doesn't create us. The hadiths that talk about uh, that Allah creates people from the moment of birth that are going to heaven and people who are going to hell, these hadiths have no basis. These are not authentic and you cannot rely on them. And reading these hadiths and basing yourself on them is absolutely wrong. Um, I'm summarizing a, a great deal of uh, the Muslim Islamic theology long ago rejected the idea of the theological position that believed in predestination in the same way that Zoroastrianism did pre-Islamic Zoroastrianism. Post-Islamic Zoroastrianism bar borrowed a lot from Islam. And so it, 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 the Zoroastrians, after Islam, they, they, they imported so much from Islam. But the idea of, of absolute predestination in that sense is, is not supported by Islamic theology. Um, there are things 
that are predestined. Perhaps things like when you're going to die. Um, perhaps other things. I mean, I, 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 anyone that tells you they, they know exactly what parts of your life are determined. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very bold claim and, and one should be very, very careful not to make um, this claim without evidence. We know that there, there are parts that Allah decides, uh, as Allah tells us that, you know, there are, uh, there are calamities, there are things that are going to affect our lives that are written. But other than that, there are, the, the way that destiny works in life, and I've, I've tried to bring it, to simplify it by giving the following example, is that there are contingencies and consequences. So if you can imagine in our modern day, you know, we have video games and video games help us understand destiny in a lot of ways. Uh, you can imagine that a character is in a video game and uh, a character has choices to make. And if they pick choice A, there is a trajectory to that choice. There is a, 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 an entire course of events. If they pick B, there is a trajectory to that. If they pick C, there is a trajectory to that. You decide what to pick. That's the contingency. And there are a whole series of contingencies that will unfold depending on what you've picked. So if you can imagine that, that includes, you know, the decision that, again, to simplify it, Allah wills that you get offers from three universities. Uh, if you pick this university, there are going to be the following consequences. If you pick this, the following consequences. You pick that, the following consequences. That is the, the ikhtiyar that you are making. That, and here I'm talking about my position because there, there are many different theological explanations that people have offered over the years that <coughs> I don't find convincing for a variety of reasons. Dest the unfolding of destiny in your life is an interactive process. If you want, the easiest way to, to try to conceptualize it yourself is through the medium of, of modern-day video games and how a character can make a decision that unfolds a variety of scenarios. Now, the scenarios, it might be that there all the different scenarios overlap on a particular point of destiny that you have to go through. The, so, that's the closest way that I can, ex, that I can uh, uh, put the matter of destiny to you. It is not true that everything is written in, in the sense of, from the moment of birth, 
you're going to do this and do that. And then people say, well, you know, then uh, isn't the fact that Allah knows from the moment you're born that you're, whether you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven. In my view, the issue of knowledge arises when there is something to know. If there is nothing to know, there is no ignorance. In other words, before a decision is made, then you there's nothing to know. So does, does Allah know from the moment you're born whether you're going to go to hell or heaven? No, because you haven't you, you haven't made the decisions that will determine whether you go to heaven or hell. There's nothing to know. The, the issue, is, it all goes back to the imputing of ignorance to the, to the divine. But ignorance means that the lack of knowledge of what is knowable. If X exists and you don't know that X exists, then you're ignorant of X. But what if X doesn't exist? So you're not ignorant. You're not ignorant of anything. So it is not ignorance that when you are born, it has not been determined whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. What has been determined is that there are a variety of scenarios. All these scenarios are contingent on your choice. And some of these scenarios, if you make the wrong choices, they will take you to hell. If you make the right choices, they will take you to heaven. And it depends on you. It depends on your choices. <coughs> so approach life with that and know that Allah is living and present and with you. And that means that there are decisions that will take you away from the divine, that will create a distance between you and the divine. And I'll tell you, Anyone who, who has experienced doing good things, li living a decent life, a good life, who have experienced be being in Allah's closeness, when they steer away, when they start committing sins that take them away from the divine, they feel it. It's it's a... It, it's a sense of loneliness and alienation that either they become stubborn about and they insist on and they say, you know, I don't want to admit that I am missing something, so I'm going to commit more and more sins that take me away more and more from the divine until I forget the divine and the divine forgets me altogether. Or they say, you know, I, I don't like being in, in this state. I don't like feeling dirty, feeling unclean. Uh, I miss the closeness to Allah. So I'm going to go back and reverse my course. And these are your choices. And Allah helps you according to your choices. And Allah tells you that if you commit a sin, it counts as one. If you commit something good, it counts as ten. It, that if you will something good, if you have something good in your intention and you are unable to do it, the mere fact that you intended it, it will count. 
So Allah helps you towards the good, but it's all contingent on you. The, <clears throat> those people, you know, they try to raise predestination as if they are raising a, a, a profound philosophical point. You, you know, you either take it, you either become truly a student of the Islamic theological debates on destiny and, and, and all of that, and then it will blow your mind because you are reading a, a tremendous amount of body of literature, or you just accept what I've offered you. And that is, after all these years of study and all, reading all these texts and so on, that is the position that I've settled on, is that, as I said, there are trajectories in life and contingencies. And these contingencies all depend on your choice. You invoke a number of contingencies. You know, you could have married this woman or you could have married this man. Well, if you married this man, here are all your contingencies. If you married this man, well, here are all, or you, you decide, if you, could, if you didn't marry at all, there are all these contingencies. There, there, they are all contingent on the choices you make. I am not I am not one of those who believes that the moment you're created, Allah decides that it is part of your destiny that you're going to marry this man or this woman or, or it, it, marriage is not like death. It, death is different. <laughs> Sorry, I laughed because I could just hear some people saying, well, Marriage is death. <laughs> yeah. Marriage and death are one. <laughs> okay, we know. I guess it depends on who you marry. Um, thank you. Okay, so the next question. Actually, so we've received a few questions about the Usuli Institute. And I, I hope that this means because more people are becoming aware of Usuli and they want to better understand, like, you know, what Usuli means. I know that in the in, at the very beginning of um, when we launched, you talked about Usuli. So I know some of this may be stuff you've already covered before, but I thought maybe it's a good opportunity since more and more people are becoming aware of, of you know the work here that this might be a good time to answer this. So uh, a couple of questions. I had a question about the name of the Usuli Institute itself. What does Usuli mean in the context of Professor Khalid Abulfadl's work? Foundationalism, principalism. How does the term usuli apply to the professor's methodology, and how does that differ from uh, other things described as usuli, such as usuli Shiism? Does an usuli approach have an overlap in meaning with the Makassidi approach discussed by others like Jasser Auda? And what does usulism, in particular, um, what distinguishes? What about usulism in particular distinguishes the approach from those of other Muslim scholars today? Um, and then a separate question, could you talk about the history of the Asuli approach? Who are some of the other scholars in our tradition that would be identified as Usuli? And how much of the professor's approach was taught by his teachers? And how much of it um, did you develop? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, um, The history of the the, the term usuli, it, the genesis of it was in the birth of the Islamic jurisprudential method. Um, 
we we in the very beginning there is an intense debate between those who are called ahl ra'i uh, the the so called the people of opinion were were usually associated with hanafis um and their their opponent and and their detractors who claimed that um instead of reason that they rely on text so but that then that early dynamic uh transforms into um if you will a um a tension between those who train and become committed in the jurisprudential method of analysis and when i say jurisprudential i mean those who train in usul al-fiqh who those who train in the methodologies of qiyas and the hermeneutics of interpretation and um and those who believe that jurisprudence should be based on khabar or on hadith in other words on textual reports with a minimum amount of interpretation so for instance when you look at bukhari you find that bukhari divided his ahadith according to jurisprudential topics because bukhari wanted to make the argument that jurisprudence can be based slowly solely on text and uh, minimal human interpretive activity can be kept to a minimum what became known as the usulis who were opposed to ahl the the, the ahl hadith methodology the usulis basically said that no interpret human interpretive t- Uh, um activity is critical it's critical because much of jurisprudence is a process of tarjih is a process of weighing the evidence and saying that uh there is a probability that god's ruling is this there is an overwhelming evidence that god's ruling is this there is clear and convincing evidence that god's ruling is that and as both in the sunni world and shi'i world the um, the usuli schools the ahlu tarjih the people of tarjih um became the the dominant schools of law uh, in terms of training and in terms of judicial activity you know the people who are appointed as judges the people who are appointed as law professors um uh, sometimes this 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 struggle uh, would take the shape of a, a an intense struggle between hanafis and hanbalis uh, sometimes as in uh, naishapur or sometimes it would take the the ahl uh, fiqh uh, or or the usulis would be in complete dominance as in egypt or uh in long periods in al-maghrib uh you know every once in a while like a, a, a movement that starts out as ahl al-hadith 
be would become intermixed and, and intermingled with very um, uh, Sufi esoteric doctrines like um, the movement of um, of al muhidun in North Africa and Spain and so on and so forth. If you want to get a good sense of the the history and the debates of the of the Usuli schools and 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 the, the the their progression through history, there is a very nice short book by Taha Jabir Alwani um, about that that goes through the main Usuli schools and. Um, Taha Jabir Alwani, I've seen a translation of this book that I was not very happy with. If you know Arabic, read his the book in the original language. Read his Arabic book. If you don't know Arabic, read the translation. Um, but Taha Jabir Alwani does a very nice job um, giving you sort of him. Um, okay. So that is the genesis, the inspiration for the idea of the Asuli method. Does it, uh, uh, Jasser al Oda is a good friend. Um, um, so I, I know exactly, and I know his work very well. Um, the, uh, and what are the overlaps between the Maqasidi approach and the 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 Maqas, When people mean when they say Maqasidi approach is the the approach that looks at Maqasid Sharia, and that then says that when you do when when you when there is a legal ruling, you have to consider the ultimate objectives of Sharia. Uh, I have there's a considerable am amount of overlap between objectivism or the Maqasidi approach and the approach that I've advocated in Reasoning with God, especially that book and in the conference of the books, and my own thought. Um, however, the part where I differ with the Maqasidi approach is the criticism that I have that often the Maqasidi approach boils down to تحقيق مصالح العباد, achieve the welfare of the people. And that instead of trying to anchor itself in a principled approach into a, a clearly defined um, a, a value system, what I often refer to as virtues, um, it it just boils down to quite often to well let's do whatever achieves the welfare of the people, and, and you know Masalah al ibad is is um, it, it ends up just empowering whoever is in 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 power, you know just basically saying do whatever serves people, um, that type of leveraging to power um, troubles me. There are some Maqasidi approach like the, the, the writings of Ibn Ashur uh, that I find very impressive. Um, 
and that doesn't boil down to just a, a leveraging of, of power, just do whatever is good for the people, um, which ultimately ends up being pure utilitarianism. And, and I'm very troubled by pure utilitarianism. I mean, you want to see an example of what it could lead to, look at Saudi Arabia today. That's pure utilitarianism. Or the jurists who support the Emirat. Oh, you know, let the ruler decide whatever is good for the people. Or what the Azhari Shiyukh do in Egypt today. Uh, you know, uh, including quite often the Mufti of Egypt, the current Mufti and the former Mufti. Uh, you know, whatever the ruler sees is good, is good. So, you know, and that's the Makassid approach. Uh, no, the, the approach, uh, the Shari approach has to be far more principled than that. Um, okay, so, and I wrote Reasoning with God to, to lay out my epistemological approach. To what extent this is what my teachers taught and what I've developed You know, you, you've you've asked a very hard question, um, because humility and deference to my teacher and respect to my teacher, I've been trained to basically claim nothing original, to always make it sound like, and and to to I mean not just make it sound, but but to to have sincerely in my heart all credit. And honor and, and is due to my teacher. Always to credit them with whatever is good, and bear the responsibility of whatever is bad. So whatever is good comes from them, and whatever is bad comes from me. That's the way I've been trained. That's and and you know, I have this 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 tension with grace all the time. You know, why don't you just say that this is yours? This is your school of thought, uh, and and it just the way I was trained. My teachers gave all credit for anything that's good to their teachers, and I give anything that's good anything the credit for anything that's good to my teachers, and anything that's bad is from me. Um, I, I can't answer that question. You know, it, it's something that may, those who want to study my thought, maybe people who will study my thought, maybe no one will study my thought, maybe some people who will study my thought will say, you know, this guy didn't bring anything original. The, he, he was just uh, parroting ideas that were already existing in the... Maybe someone who studies my thought will say, you know, everything he said... Uh, he made it sound like it it came from someone else, but it's actually all of it is his. I don't want to make that judgment. It's not my place to make that judgment. And it and all my official position as I because I often feel like I talk to my teachers and I am aware of their presence and. And I and I sincerely always tell them anything that's good comes from you, and anything that's bad is from me. Um, I can't burden you with anything that's stupid, idiotic, or silly, or foolish, or ignorant. 
But anything that's beautiful and intelligent and worthwhile, I, I want to give them the credit. Uh, I wish people honored their teachers in, in, in this society that way. I've had more insolent students than I can ever count. And the worst thing about insolent students and ungrateful students is that they kill mentorship and they murder teaching. Um, if, you, if, you, if you as a teacher don't have students that honor you, then the incentive to teach is no longer there and it kills the, the entire process of education and that's horrible. Um, have I answered the question? I mean, listen, the Usuli method, if, if, of course, you know, a lot of people don't have, are not going to plow through 600 plus pages of reasoning with God to, but I can tell you the, the, the following, is that as I, as I've mentioned before, I believe that there are purposes, ethical purposes, for the divine commands. There are divine commands in Ibadat that rational inquiry plays no role in. But the textual evidence for that is usually very powerful. The textual evidence that we must pray five times a day is over 90%. Um, the textual evidence that you have to fast Ramadan, you know, if you want to, is 99%. So that, there's no role for rational inquiry there. But the vast majority of law doesn't fall on the evidentiary scale at such a high level of certitude. The vast majority of evidence, we have to take the collective indicators of the divine will. The indicators that come from legal maxims, al-qawad al-fiqhiyya, which, which play a huge role in, in the Usuli thinking, in the Usuli thinking as I've learned it. Legal maxims play a huge role. In fact, we would spend, while Ahl al-Hadith often spend no time studying legal maxims, we spend a lot of time studying legal maxims and memorizing legal maxims and thinking through legal maxims and reading al-ajbah wa nazair and reading al-dabusi uh, uh, and reading um, al-shatibi and, and al-qurafi and, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, legal maxims are, are critical because they sum up the the foundations, the structural foundations of law. We combine all the indicators and put in the indicators in search of the divine will. The search for the divine will is itself the jihad. We are in a state of ibadah as long as we're searching for the divine will. We believe that Allah rewards us the minute that I say, what does Allah want? And the minute I start searching for all the indicators for what Allah wants, I am being rewarded, regardless of the, of the conclusion I reach. What Allah will hold me responsible for was I negligent 
or irresponsible when I searched for the divine will. Failing to search for the divine will is, is a responsibility that no one should bear. Meaning, that's a very serious problem. If you, if you just ignore the divine will, if you say, I don't care what Allah wants. But searching for it is ibadah. You are in a state of ibadah when you search. And as I evaluate the evidence, it is my obligation to do tarjih. And in that tarjih, in that weighing of evidence, I must be transparent. I must be diligent. I must be comprehensive. And I must be transparent. So that the mukallaf, the person that has can make an informed decision whether to defer to my opinion or not to defer. To say, yes, I agree with your tarjih, the way you evaluated the evidence and the way you reached a probability as to what the divine will is. Or that person could say, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't buy into your, into your thinking process. So when, I, when, when we called the Asuli school, the Asuli, the, the Asuli Institute, I am referring to a historical concept and a historical dynamic that you can read about in, in Taha Jabra Alwani's book, um, uh, which is a very good text because it just sums up a lot. Uh, but how much of what I'm saying comes from the te- from my from my teachers well you know to 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 in many ways everything uh, when you say the idea that uh, you are in a state of ibadah when you search for the divine will uh, and but in some ways there's a lot that i am saying that is not that i haven't heard from my teachers for better or for worse, I guess, uh, in the sense that I am applying the tarjih process, I am weighing the evidence for inazila, for a situation, for a, a, a problem that didn't confront my teachers and was not part of the life of my teachers. And my teachers could have never imagined in, in, in many ways. I exist in a situation that is entirely different than my teachers. Uh, you know, my a lot of my teachers weren't aware that it is, was not part of their epistemological universe that a woman would feel offended that she cannot pray while on her period. It was not an issue. It was not a a problematic. Women where they were born and raised never thought of it as a problem or an offense against their dignity. But since women have present, if a man comes to me and raises this question, I tell the man, you know, you don't have to worry about a period. Get lost. Worry about your own problems. But if a woman comes to me and says, why does Allah not accept me while I'm on my period? What's wrong with me? It would be irresponsible for me as someone who has spent their entire life studying Allah's will to say, that's your problem. I, 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 it becomes my obligation to go and search. Is Allah offended by her, peri- by her period? Is Allah, does Allah think she's disgusting because she's on her menstrual cycle? 
Is, is it that Allah doesn't want her to, to pray because it offends Allah if she stands in prayer? It, it becomes your obligation because you have a mukallaf that have presented you as a problem that was not presented to my teachers. Well, my teacher, if my teacher was alive or my teachers were alive and in the same circumstances and confronted the same problems, would they necessarily agree with me? I can't say that. What I can say, if they know that I'm sincere in my methodology and I am diligent and I am comprehensive and that I, I, I worked very hard, that they will say, we, you know, may Allah bless you for your effort, but we respectfully disagree. Or if it's one of my teachers who were, I was very close to, it'll say, Wala ya Khalid, you know, you kid, come here, come here. You know, what nonsense you're saying. And I will accept it from him because he's my teacher. You know, I'll kiss his hand and say, may Allah bless you, but, you know, I disagree with you. I, uh, that, that's how it works. You know, as long as there's mercy and love and compassion, we can disagree with each other without hating each other, without disrespecting each other. But when, when there is no love or compassion and there is, you know, Ill, Ill will and jealousy and you know you want to take this person down and you want to that, take that person down and you want to prove that this person is an idiot and you want to prove that Allah has gifted you with sharia and no one else that's when it becomes seriously a problem okay okay so it's 10 after 7 should we just do one more question okay what, what maghrib is that um, 7.50 uh, we could go to 7.30. Is that okay? Okay. Uh, continue, just, uh, continue reading. I'm just going to... Why was this thing so short? <laughs> okay. I'll wait for you to come back. Are you guys okay to go 7.30? Okay. <laughs> All right. So maybe this is my chance just to like say a couple things because, um, you know, a lot of people ask about the Suli Institute and obviously, you know, this is like my, my near and dearest cause to my heart. And there's certain, you know, I, I know I put him in a really difficult situation asking him that question because it's really hard for someone trained to not say you know, I mean, he explained it. But obviously, this is something that I believe in for our time. Very, you know, I'm, I'm fully committed that I don't see anyone else being able to put together a comprehensive view, you know, of how to live life as a pious Muslim in our age, in our context, with the challenges that we confront that didn't exist in other places or other times or with other teachers, and the methodology and the respect that you know people can question and that they have permission to question and that their dignity requires a certain level of respect and that things should make sense and they should feel right in your heart and your mind and you know how shocking it is that that isn't really um, the standard in many other places so i really believe even having a q and a like this he didn't actually look at the q the questions um, last night. He's, these are cold for him. 
So the fact that you know I could throw any question and he'll answer it, um, this is unique to the Usuli Institute and unique to the professor. And I can't hear what you're saying. <laughs> he can't hear what that. I'm saying. <laughs> no, it's good that I can't hear it, so I don't get. Yeah, because he knows he knows me well enough to know that I'm I'm going to be like saying nice things about him, and then it'll make him. You uncomfortable. Know, very uncomfortable, and he doesn't take um, he doesn't take praise well. And pretty much any time I say something nice, it's like in one ear and out the other. But that's you know that's a testament to his training, and I, I wouldn't want him to be any different because that's why it is the way it is, and it's something. Um, so it's something I'm very I'm very proud of, and it's something that I feel people are are like thirsty for and searching for, and so. You know, this is what I want to spend all of my time and effort supporting until the day I leave this earth. And I hope that I can get as many other people on board with me because I truly believe that, you know, this approach of, of dignity and love and mercy and compassion, you know, that's authentic Islam to me. And there's so much room for, you know, critical thinking and, you know, and, and you don't have to be a scholar. So, you know, he gave a very academic response to what is a Suli. I can give a very, you know, layperson convert response. This, to me, helps me understand my place and how I should build a relationship with God and the boundaries, you know, the very huge liberties that I have in asking questions and searching and expecting that God wants something beautiful. And that's, I, I just don't find that really anywhere else. I haven't found that anywhere else. And I think that to know what this school is about, the school of thought, because I can say I believe this is a school of thought. If you want to, to master it, I mean, the best thing you can do for yourself personally is, is to learn as much as you can, to read all of the professor's books you know, watch the lectures. I mean, I, you know, not many other people follow this methodology. Yes, it's the same methodology that maybe his teachers taught, but it's applied to our time and our age and our challenges. So, um, so that's my, my two cents. I believe in this school of thought and I believe that a lot of it, I, I know a lot of it is original and I can say that, he can't say that. But, um, so, and I think the more we can do to make it, you know, original and viable for our time and sustainable for the future and for our kids. It's, you know, it's to our benefit and to our credit and, and hopefully to Allah's, you know, acceptance. Uh, I, um, I, I didn't hear what Grace said, um, but I just want to say um, <coughs> the I was it's Many of us were were raised with the idea that Allah is beautiful and loves beauty, and and many of us have studied this hadith. Many of us know the role of ihsan in Islamic theology. Ihsan, that virtue, uh, but. I had the blessing of being raised by a beautiful by beautiful human beings 
especially my mother, Allah, may Allah bless her soul, who is a beautiful human being who embodied the beauty of Islam. And then my teachers, who I saw, you know, not every single teacher, but the, the teachers that left the deepest impact on me, uh, people like Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali, Sheikh Adil Eid, uh, who would represent the embodiment of mercy and compassion in everything they did. I, I would see how they would deal with servant boys or girls that, that would work. I would see how they would intervene to stop some, you know, a, a garage worker abusing the children working on, on, on the cars that were fixing cars. I, I saw what Islam meant to them. Now, the part is that I carry this faith in the beauty of the divine, in, in that, that once you feel it, once it penetrates your heart, you know it to be the truth. And I carry it to a very different situation. My dream, my, my dream is to, for Allah to allow me the means where I don't have to worry about making a living, teaching, technical law, so that I can commit myself to training students who would become steeped and anchored in the methodology that, that I am espousing. In understanding Allah's law in the light of Ihsan and in the light of Husn, in the light of beauty and compassion and Rahmah in everything they do. And now, I would sincerely hope that these students would not just parrot me, but would contribute their own, make their own original contributions for their time and place. That they would take what they learned, be inspired by it, but go beyond it. Because any teacher that doesn't want their student to go beyond them and exceed them is not a real teacher. The, the challenge I have is that teaching my courses and doing my academic work exhausts me so that I have very limited energy to train beyond um, the role I play as an academic. And that, that saddens me. I mean, I, I, I have to admit to you that, that um, you know, I, I wish I could dedicate hours every week uh, just reading texts, uh, you know, picking the, 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 the students that I think are very promising. And there are people that I know that are intellectually, have the intellectual wherewithal. Allah has given them the ability. And to read with them, for instance, Kitab al-Furuq, and to, to comment on Kitab al-Furuq, uh, or to read through al-Ajbah wal-Nazair, and to give them that education, because that's an education that, that will train the type of people. 
or to do the the Quran. Everything begins with understanding the Quran. If we don't understand the Quran, we are going nowhere. No, I, I don't trust any jurist who's not anchored in the Quran. And so come, picking a, a group of people and anchoring them in the Quran so that they understand everything in Sharia in light of the anchoring in the Quran, that's a dream. But of course, you know, if, if, you, if you sell out to the right people, they provide you with funding to the Emirat and Saudi or whatever, and then you can, you, 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 you know, you, you do that. If you insist on not selling out, and uh, then you exist in the situation I, I, I'm in. And, you know, I mean, it's all in Allah's hands. And maybe Allah doesn't want, doesn't want me to train students. It's up to Allah. I, I trust in what Allah ends up giving me. But I will, I will try my best, and I try my best within the limitations that Allah has given me. But that would be, I mean, can you imagine taking a kitab like Al-Mughni by Qadi Abdul-Jabbar, all eight volumes and reading through them with, with students, or taking the, the, the text of Mullah Sadra and reading through it, all the volumes, or uh, uh, even Al-Futuhat by Ibn Arabi, I mean, you, you need a committed, dedicated six months of hard work uh, to, to do that. But you will produce people who will create civilizations. If, if you anchor students in these types of, this type of education, oh my Lord, you cannot imagine what these students will do. They will be the, the new founding of a, a, a just an Islam that is undeniable and an irrepressible. Inshallah. Okay, people, that's our job. <laughs> All right, so this I think is a good question to end the evening on. So you mentioned two halakhas ago that the Prophet's miracle was the Quran and it stands as a distinct proof apart from the miracles of other prophets. I understand that different scholars debated what, what it was that made the Quran miraculous. For example, whether it was the prose, the content, etc. The typical explanation we hear today is that the Quran's miracle is linguistic and it is the Quraysh's failure to answer its challenge that demonstrates its power to incapacitate the jazz. Alhamdulillah, I am personally content with this answer, but I do not think it would persuade many today, especially non-Arabic speakers. I just wanted to ask your thoughts on the miraculous nature of the Quran as a timeless quality and how it is a proof for all times and places. Yeah, that, that is a good question. Um, okay, first, Al-Ajaz al-Laghawi wa Al-Ajaz al-Bayani it is absolutely Arabic for the Arabs who knew Arabic, where classical Arabic, what we call classical Arabic, was for them their Ammiya, for them their native tongue. And the, it is very difficult to reproduce that type of impact. The, when, when these Arabs heard the Quran, they reacted to it 
today's Arabs, their relationship to the Arabic language is they have become colonized and westernized to the point that their relationship to classical Arabic has become tenuous at best. And, um, uh, uh, you know, many Arabs today, if you read to them classical poetry, it, it produces nothing in them, or they don't even understand it. Um, their ability to evaluate the truly miraculous language of the Quran um, is also absent. Now, does this mean that we should all go study Arabic to, eva to, to appreciate the, the... Well, I mean, obviously you can't impose that on people, but what I can tell you is that if you are among those who wants to be a jurist, a scholar, a sheikh, then yes, it is absolutely imperative that you study Arabic and become comfortable with Arabic to the point that your ear starts being able to distinguish between why the hadith is not particularly um, balaghi. It's, the balagha of the hadith is, is just not, the eloquence of the hadith is very different from the eloquence of the Quran. Um, so, but the ajaz of Quran other than the language, Let, let's put the language aside because you're absolutely right. The, the, the language addresses those who know the language. Part of the reason that I was talking about um, the thematic unity of each surah in the Quran and that each surah contributes to the building of a Muslim character in ways that are just blows my mind. Part of the reason that I embarked on this journey of study, you know, I read most of the tafsir, I've reread, read and reread and reread each surah and took notes and, and, you know, read all the things about the numerical miracles of the Quran. And, and I, I, I don't take a position about it. Some of them are very impressive, the people who try to show these mathematical miracles that exist in the text of the Quran and so on. Some of them are, are, are impressive, some are not so impressive. Anyway, um, Part of the reason that I embarked on that journey was in part in exactly in response to the type of question that you raised. I wanted to understand if you cannot appreciate the language of the Quran, then what else is there that is miraculous? And I am completely content at this point in my life to, tell, to say that truly just even the, the Quran if you understand its, them its thematic structure, it is a mind-blowing book. So, for instance, the chapter on Surat Maryam 
has a very specific message about the miraculous nature of the mira- of the the truly the exceptional status of what women do and and of course to say that is one thing but to actually show you from one ayah to another how the quran honors women through surah maryam or to take surah al-ankabut and to show you how allah through surah al-ankabut through this entire chapter teaches you about what are homes homesteads that are built on sound foundations and what are homesteads that are built on illusions and and that the foundations are non-existent to show you how the entire chapter is a discourse on the virtues of the homestead that you build or to take surah al-nahl the bee and to show you how Allah unpacks for us our nature, our relationship with nature, and how if we abuse nature, it, nature will abuse us back. But to actually show you that from one part, you know, as the surah progresses from through its discourse. That's what I find to be the true miracle. You can get a taste of that if you read, I would recommend that you read the works of Zutsu. He's a Japanese scholar that wrote about the semantics of the Quran. He gives you a little taste of that. Um, It's very different than Fazl Rahman's Major Themes of the Quran. Although I like that book, Major Themes of the Quran, I would recommend it. Uh, To any of you that have not read it, read it. Fazlur Rahman, major themes of the Quran. But what I'm talking about is is different. I, I think that there is a reason why Allah wanted each surah to be the way it is. Because that is something that has always in, it, it troubled me. If I play around with the surahs, if I take an ayah out of here and place it in this surah, and take an ayah out of here and place it in that surah, if I basically, you know, uh, uh, what is that game where you switch uh, things? Um, if, you know, I just play, is that going to make a difference in, in the meaning of the surah? And initially, when I learned the Quran, I wasn't taught, why can't we do that? You know, I would ask my teachers, often as I'm reciting the Quran in, in the process of memorizing the Quran, uh, you know, I would get confused and I would recite the wrong ayah or I would recite the wrong words and then the sheikh would correct me. And, uh, and then I, I've always wondered, well, okay, yeah, but does it make a difference in meaning? And that's what I embarked on, is to understand, well, why did Allah put this ayah in this surah? And not in another surah. Why does it use mujrimun here and use kafirun here and use zalimun here and use mushrikun here? Does it make a difference? Does it make a difference when the ayah says mujrimun or zalimun or mushrikun or kafirun? 
And I wanted to become satisfied that it actually makes a difference. And I can, my testament, my shahada, is that absolutely, and that is part of the miracle of the Quran. Every word is where it has to be, and you cannot take the word out without changing the meaning. And may Allah, Ya Rab, Ya Rab, give me the, the, the ability to convey this knowledge for whatever it's worth to whoever I can convey it with so it can preserve it. Because after spending 30 years chasing after this hypothesis, I am, maybe, I, I mean, Allah knows best, but you know, I, I'm just worried that I will leave this world without having transmitted it to anyone. And not that I am, you know, all, all, all special, and, and maybe Allah has, you know, someone else around the world that ha knows what I know and, and a million times better. Uh, but for for whatever it's worth, I mean that if Allah knows that that it would be good for Muslims and Islam, I mean Allah help me achieve it. Uh, you know, we we don't read enough to know all the great minds around the world, and I'm you know I'm not I'm not saying anything that should imply that. I'm all that special, and you know, I, I have a great gift, and, and all of that. And, you know, that's no one should understand that from me. Okay, is that so I think we're at seven thirty-four. What are you holding? Well, I have a lot. You know, I want to thank Still. everybody. We have so many questions, but. Yeah. They're all, I mean, some of these are very big questions, so they're not things that we can just answer quickly. But I, I'm holding, he's asking me what I'm holding. There was one question that I was hoping um, that, I didn't think we would get to it today, but I just want to put it on your radar because you mentioned something before and people haven't forgotten. And that's the idea of the symbolic caliphate. Um. And several people asked about, you know, what is the governance that Muslims should aspire to? But specifically, people wanted you to follow up on that teaser that you put out in the khutbah about the idea of the symbolic caliphate. So yeah. I know you're not going to answer that question now, but just to say, people are still waiting. <laughs> so I, I mean, if if this Q and A thing is very useful for people, I mean, I I just. Uh, we, maybe we can, since we are in the summer um, break, maybe we can schedule one in a couple of weeks or something like that. I mean, I... Well, our next Tefsir Halakha is in two weeks, so two weeks from today. And then we can see, um, you know, definitely in the summertime, and we can intersperse that and hopefully... Yeah, I mean, I, to be, I, I'm really surprised by the volume of questions that came through and that... You know the way the way that I was taught is that if there is so many questions and you have to you have to answer them you you can't turn, just run away and, and hide <laughs> um, okay. so I mean yeah we could schedule another one inshallah yeah, inshallah and and hopefully maybe we can also do a halakha um, to introduce you know one of the chapters of your findings about the Quran. 
So yeah, I mean, yeah, my. Just the, to dem to demonstrate what to people what I'm talking about and yeah. and and maybe maybe you know nothing I say is going to be remotely original. I mean, I, I just I I doubt that. You, but, you know, just. <laughs> um, but my hope is that you know if we can do one such halakha and people recognize the value of it then we can take that and encourage other people to jump on board in terms of, you know, maybe, hopefully, inshallah, financially supporting that effort and making it happen faster than, you know, otherwise. So, inshallah. So please do, like, send me an email. I know other people have written me since this Q&A started, so thank you very much. Um, I, I will um, read those later. But if you're interested in um, volunteering or getting involved, um, you know, in any capacity, um, definitely email me at grace at usuli so, Thank you so much, okay. everybody. Aid Mubarak. Aid Mubarak, it's everyone. Time to break fast. Very and may, may Allah accept your your psalm and may Allah bless your Aid and may Allah make this coming year better for the Muslim Ummah, Ya Rab. And may Allah rid us of all the despots that plague our universe and. <laughs> and allow us to, 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 to experience justice, just the taste of justice for a difference, for a change. Ya Rab. Ya Rab. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. See you in a couple of weeks. Or see you Friday for the khutbah. Mubarak. Haid Mubarak.